welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Uh, we're welcoming back to the podcast uh, once more Harvey K., um, who is a, a, a professor of, um, is it po- political science? Correct, uh, correct me if I'm No, no. Democracy and Justice Studies. Cool, yeah. At, at uh, <laughs> the University of Wisconsin at where? It's, we don't say at. We say University of Wisconsin Green Bay. There we go. Okay. Um, I really should have uh, written that down before we started. <laughs> I um, thought you'd have had it memorized from that past year. Yeah, my my. I wrote fifty no, words you, you, today. My brain is fried. Harvey, you transcend all institutional affiliation. You are sweet generous. There's there's no institution that could define you. <laughs> but anyway, we're having we're having. I'm Harvey drinking on. wine. I don't know what you're drinking. <laughs> It's like a ketamine and laudanum. That's that's my beverage of choice. Um, I don't even know what the first one is. What is ket- what is the first one? It's a horse tranquilizer. Well, yeah, dissociative anesthetic. Um, it's used by medical professionals and probably Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, actually, <laughs> it, the, the, we're getting off track already. But the the right. uh, medical safety of that as an anesthetic is probably better than most uh, things that are used for anesthetic now. Um, oh. It just makes you trip balls, and uh, people <laughs> thought they were scared, you know, and and uh, so now they use stuff that will you won't trip, but you're more likely to die. At any rate, we're here to well, talk wait, about. Sorry, I cannot resist telling you this. <laughs> when I was five years old or four and a half, I don't even remember. I I had to have my tonsils out. Now remember that would be 1953, four, right in there, and I can definitely remember being on the table and the doctor saying, "Count to a hundred or count backwards from a hundred. And I'm I don't know if I I may have lied to him. I said I can't do that, hoping like they couldn't go through with this. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, how about 10? I said, I could do that. And then he put the, the mask over. And I'm pretty sure, I want to tell you, it was like ether, you know, something like that. Fun, yeah. The book is called The Fight for Four Freedoms. Uh, no, what, no, sorry, sorry. It's The Fight for the Four Freedoms. Fight for the Four Freedoms. What made FDR and the Greatest Generation truly great? Um, a sort of uh, a, a history of, you know, uh, the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt, and a sort of ensuing uh, effort to cement the New Deal in 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 practice, and um, a pretty good a pretty good book. I liked it a lot, and and um, you know we'll we'll definitely include a a link in the description. Um, I wanted to start us off here by you know I guess just logically at the beginning. Can you can you uh, lead us through you know what were the four freedoms? Where did they sort of come from and what was uh, kind of Roosevelt's political, you know, orientation and objectives when he was promulgating this doctrine? Yeah, I I promise you I will answer that. But I do want to say something as a a preface to help people understand why. Um, I, I have the sense that Americans actually carry with them a kind of sense of a deep cultural memory or a sort of set of progressive instincts, if you don't mind my putting it that way. And and I, I have believed that for quite some time now, Americans, whether they're black, white, brown, I don't, you know, I don't care what the racial or ethnic basis is, that most Americans have been fully aware, and I think it's evident today, but for, for decades now, Americans have been fully aware of the fact that the way things are is not only... It's not only not the way 
They have to be, perhaps, but they, they're not the way they should be, given the American promise. And, and I have this feeling that when we think back, and I don't know how many of, your, of, your, of our listeners know anything about the 90s or, the, or, for that matter, the 2000s even, but it is the case that in the 90s there emerged and, and into the 2000s two kind of strange cultural phenomena. And one was a kind of founding father's fever or founding f- founder's sheet. And the other one was this an amazing, amazing um, sort of almost obsessive kind of interest in the great, in what came to be called the greatest generation, as dubbed by Tom Brokaw, who really missed the point, I think, quite often in his work. And, and I thought it was revealed. Most people thought, oh, p- Americans are nostalgic. And nostalgic is to dismiss what was going on. And I really thought that that it was the case that Americans really were looking for an answer as to why they felt the way they did. And instinctively, and I mean this truly instinctively, they looked to perhaps, you know, to these two revolutionary or at least progressive generations, those who were involved in the founding. And I don't mean the likes of Washington, Jefferson and so on. I mean, a generation of Americans, farmers and artisans and slaves alike in the case of the founding generation. And similarly, in the case of the 1930s, working people in all their diversity, who literally confronted and and by way of some really astounding leadership from Roosevelt and the New Dealers, found out how to address, to confront and in their own way transcend um, the, the worst economic and social catastrophe in American history. Now, having said that, so when I write these kinds of books, whether it was the Thomas Paine book that I think we've talked about essentially last year, or for that matter, the FDR and democracy, or even more importantly, the work we're going to talk about now, I'm trying to enable Americans to understand why it is they feel the way they do. In other words, they feel that way because in many ways they're already endowed or imbued with certain kinds of progressive, not opinions, but progressive instincts. I like to think of the almost radical instincts. So the four freedoms, if you ask most Americans what the four freedoms are, they'd never be able to tell you. Or if they had a good sense of the, of, the, of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, they might tell you, well, you know, the four freedoms of the, the four liberties of the First Amendment. The four freedoms, which were an astounding force in popular culture and, and uh, politics in the course of World War II and even ensuing times, even if people, again, could not name them, were um, were articulated by Franklin Roosevelt in 1941 in a speech, a State of the Union address of January 6, 41, in which he was sort of calling Americans to be prepared for the for the likely possibility that they would be in World War II. Okay, he had already in a in a fireside chat called for turning the United States into the arsenal of democracy. Now he was going to give them a vision of what a world beyond the war might be like. So he he talks about the possibility of creating a world characterized by four fundamental human freedoms. Freedom of speech and expression. Freedom of worship, or if you prefer, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, perhaps. And then is where he goes beyond the Bill of Rights, you might say. And he says, freedom from want and freedom from fear. And those two latter freedoms were truly radical ideas for a president to offer Americans as a vision to be pursued after the war. And so the four freedoms were this, if you like, 
not simply a slogan. In fact, most Americans, even during the war, couldn't name specifically the four freedoms, but it somehow got became part of their mindset that this war was about more than just defending the United States. This was, a, this was about going beyond the America of the 1920s, and, or even for that matter, the America of the 1930s. Now, what empowered Roosevelt to do that is interesting. Americans themselves empowered him because when he thought about the first two terms of his presidency from 33 to 41, he could look back and consider the degree to which not only had he and the New Dealers and the Democratic Congress enacted a whole series of bills into acts, programs and initiatives to truly transform American public life, the American landscape, but also bills turns into bills turned into acts that empowered working people, whether it had to do with National Labor Relations Act, uh, the agriculture, the earlier Agricultural Adjustment Act. Uh, and in fact, for every for every New Deal project that he proposed, meaning, you know, whether it was the uh, National Industrial Recovery Act, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the um, the Rural Electrification Agency. I mean, all of these things, all of them known as the alphabet soup of the New Deal, you know, NIRA, the AAA, the N. I mean, for all of those things, people, working people themselves created their own alphabet soup of agencies, agencies to enable their agency to go to work, their agency to confront the powers that be especially the corporate powers that be, the conservative and reactionary powers that be. So you had, you know, you had the, if, if they didn't already exist, you had the, the expansion of the United Mine Workers, the United Auto Workers, uh, the, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the National Youth, uh, uh, the NYA, the, not the NYA, the American Youth Congress, the AYC, four and a half million young people from everyone from, members of the YWCA and the YMCA over to the young communists <laughs> and the young socialists, four and a half million young people essentially affiliated to this American Youth Congress that really did demand opportunities for young people, work-study opportunities, all of which, by the way, did come into being during the New Deal. So... No. Now, let me ask you, Harvey. Let me let yeah, me sorry, intervene and, and, and ask. Please. No, no. This is this is a this is a great start. Uh, and, and I want to say a number of things about that already because uh, there's some brilliance to tease out there. Because uh, uh, you know, and in a second, maybe you can speak to the fact that there are multiple drafts that that Roosevelt wrote before he realized this framing of the four freedoms, right? And so I want to hear about about how that clicked for him and and what went into into that uh, epiphany. But. Uh, this idea that there's this kind of almost union collective unconscious politically of, of progressive ideals that can be tapped and that Roosevelt was savvy enough to see an engaged and, and kind of desperate citizenry that could symbiotically be kind of uh, engaged with and activated. And then to have vision, which is, I mean, among the things we're missing from from what if you can call people today leaders, uh, you have a few, I think, you know, Bernie, AOC, the squad, but, but, uh, vision, right. Is, is one of the, the critical things. And, and you, you chart why it's so critical and it situates the four freedoms so well, because vision actually 
activates somebody's narrative and situates them as part of a longer history and part of the imagined community that they're in now in the past and going forward. And so, you know, that along with a cool alliterative framing, because Americans adore alliteration, right? Uh, I, I love alliteration. I live <laughs> Who for doesn't? I don't trust people that don't love alliteration. Um, it, it's, it's a combination of, of, of vision, political savvy, and communication, along with tapping into the ideals and trying to fight for them. So, so maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, how those components went into the actual kind of uh, fructifying, if you will, of, of these four freedoms. See what I did there? Yeah, well, okay, I'll, I'll approach it from two angles. If you, a whole bunch of thoughts come into mind as you were speaking. By the way, that was a very articulate way of putting my entire life's projects. Okay? <laughs> it's, um, the, it's the Nicaraguan rum right here. <laughs> well, so you may recall when we spoke of FDR and the book, the volume I edited, FDR and Democracy, a couple of months ago, that FDR actually first envisioned the idea of the four freedoms and even the Economic Bill of Rights back in 1932 in a campaign speech at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, where he spoke of creating or in many ways redeeming the ambitions and aspirations of the Declaration of Independence. And he called for an economic declaration of rights. So it is the case that truly, even before he's president, Roosevelt has in mind these kinds of things, okay, empowering people and enabling people. Well, during the course of, of the 30s, as he himself realizes, and many a time during the 30s, Roosevelt himself is actually pushed by working people as much as he is empowering them. It's a real, to use the Marxist concept or Hegelian, if you prefer, the dialectic between a president and working people. And probably the greatest example of democratic politics ever in American history. Okay, for all of the faults and failings, by the way, I mean, we know Roosevelt's sins. And I don't just mean that, that he, you know, that he had an affair back in the 19 teens. I'm talking about everything from leaving the military as a segregated military and, and you know, interning Japanese American families during World War Two. And it may not be a, really a sin of his so much as a sin of, of Congress at the time, the failure basically to lift the refugee quotas and enable more Jewish refugees to come in the country. We know that stuff. But it is the case that Roosevelt is often pushed into action because he's invited the action. Now, that, that's something to remember. So, but, and the other thing to remember is that la the labor movement itself, for many, many years, had advanced an argument known, in which they said, we're struggling for an American standard of living. And what they meant by that is a living that we would tend to think of as one afforded by a living wage or at the least a family wage. So that stays at the heart of the labor movement. And Roosevelt is pretty much educated to that back in the in the 20s by the, the, the women socialist, often Jewish East European immigrants, socialist organizers, labor organizers that she brings back to Hyde Park when FDR is still convalescing from the, the polio he's suffering. So he knows about what the aspirations of labor are. And then in the 1930s, he is all the more educated by the likes of Sidney Hillman and other labor leaders. So that plays into his into his thinking as well. And we should also not forget, as long as we're in the midst of this pandemic, that Roosevelt himself was the victim of a pandemic. He had polio. After the early 1920s, he could never walk on his own. He had braces that enabled him to stand and to simulate walking but he could never really do it without one of his sons on his arm or someone he trusted on his arm. 
And his feeling was that, you know, there was he and there was a fire one time, by the way, at Hyde Park at the home. And his greatest fear was that he might literally be killed by his incapacities. So it's often said that his freedom from want question, the freedom from want question comes into his mind because he's educated by working people themselves as to what working people need. Keep in mind, most uh, our listeners, that before the 1930s, there was no Social Security. There wasn't there. The efforts to create a minimum wage were blocked by a reactionary at the, at the least conservative Supreme Court. Roosevelt was seeking to create when he said freedom from want, even though he said it one way in the speech, Americans understood that what he was trying to do is keep people from destitution and hopefully in time from poverty. Okay, and when he talked freedom from fear, he had in mind everything from we should not be subject to the war that would devastate us, but also we should not be subject in everyday life to fears that we could possibly address fears of being injured in the workplace, okay? Fears of being struck by a pandemic. I mean, you name it. I mean, some people have said to me, well, isn't that kind of idealistic to think freedom from want and fear? Well, bullshit, okay? I mean, it's not a black and white <laughs> kind of question. It's not like all fear or, or all the absence of fear. If there are things that we can change, then let us address it, okay? You, you remember that expression? It isn't that long ago. Not me, us. Yeah, that's right. Well, and what what he uh, the the freedom from fear, I think, is is kind of interesting um, in the in the sort of current moment of, you know, sitting back, looking at nearly 20 years of imperialist war as part of the kind of, you know, war on terrorism. You know, yeah. and he he was he was saying that. um you know, uh, no, no, I mean, among the stipulations was basically what is the sort of opening lines of the UN charter, I think, which is to just say that like, we, we should do absolutely everything we can to prevent war, wars of aggression, uh, war of any kind, you know, the, the, uh, after it having, you know, devastated Europe twice in the lifetime of the people who are writing it. And, um, you know, you you look at um, you know the the legacy of the war on terror, and um, it's certainly much worse for like people in Afghanistan and Iraq who have been subject to sort of like imperial occupation and so on. But it hasn't been that hot for the United States either. You know, it's 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 uh, you know, uh, it seems like Roosevelt was aiming to sort of like put the U.S. into a, a kind of diplomatic uh, coalition of countries to say that, like, you know, okay, we're we're all going to be sort of jockeying for position here, but um, we're not just not going to do wars anymore. You know, if we, if we could possibly help it, let's just stop with the violence as much as we possibly can. And it really seems like a shame that that was almost immediately thrown out the window by the, you know, Washington establishment. Yeah, it's interesting to consider back in 1920 when he was running for vice president on the Democratic ticket, that that ticket endorsed and was pursuing the creation of the League of Nations as Wilson again. I mean, I don't want to say anything too nice about Woodrow Wilson. You know, he was a racist son of a bitch, even if he was a professor and president of Princeton. But hell, I went to Rutgers. Princeton was probably the racist of the two. <laughs> 
we at least had Paul Robeson in, among our students. So anyhow, but having said that, the point is that he, they ran on a League of Nations ticket and they lost. And Roosevelt never forgot both the fact that Republicans tried to wrap themselves in the flag. He, he had no intention of ever letting them do that again when he was running against them. But the other thing was he really never gave up on the idea of the League of Nations. And when he and in fact, one interesting thing is that when he proposes the, the four freedoms, they are stated as an international ideal. Americans heard them as an American set of ideals, but he actually laid them out very much in terms of the freedom from fear is let's end war. Let's set up an arrangement where there will be no war. And then one thing you would one of the striking things when I've done all this research, I mean, I've read all of FD, every single one of FDR speeches, you guys know, and people can't see it. And occasionally when we do these talks, you probably know that I've got the full every one of FDR's speeches lined up here on my on my shelves. The fact is that from the very beginning, FDR did not call the alliance that came to, to exist in World War II as the allies. He always called them the United Nations. He was already framing the idea that late in the war, they were going to create a United Nations. So in many ways, even though Truman is president when all of this takes place, and Eleanor Roosevelt plays a leading role in United Nations and the International Declara the Declaration, International Declaration of Human Rights, it is the case that it's Roosevelt's vision, the the, uh, the idea of the United Nations, I think. And I, I look, again, I, I fully acknowledge Roosevelt's sins. I, I do not want to ignore them. But it remains the case that the vision that he afforded is one not unlike the case of Jefferson. The, what, for all of his faults and failings, and you want to pull down his statue, that's one thing. But the fact is the vision is, is valuable. What's really interesting about, you know, Lincoln and, and FDR – um, is that their leadership was not simply the pragmatic skill, and, and they were both very skilled orators and very savvy and, and had prudential wisdom. But uh, you know, it, it ties into what you're saying. But not just the freedom from fear, but the freedom from want is also universal. Because you can see how, okay, if we're going to end all wars, that has to be kind of something done internationally, uh, collectively. But you can still think that maybe these are things that are targeting like our interest as a nation in particular. But just like the Declaration of Independence, and just like Lincoln uh, giving a, a new birth to those ideals, these are statements that are universal. And, and the statement isn't just that Americans should be free from want. FDR is saying that everyone, right, around the globe should be spared from, from that fear. Yes, and yeah, have, right. So that's, I think that's incredibly important. Right. No, in fact, to go back to your question that you asked me, and I should just say, you know, that there were seven renditions of the speech before they settled on that, I guess, on that seventh or modified seventh rendition. Did he sing them like Hamilton-style renditions? He kind of... <laughs> You should you should know that as a painite, I have not seen Hamilton, nor <laughs> nor will yeah. I probably ever. But that's beside the point. Okay. Well, we can so, hate on that. We'll hate on that later. We'll, you okay. Know. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so these. What's interesting is that everyone I've read. I mean, actually, I'll say, let me tell this as a story for anyone who might be interested in how these things work on my as a scholar. So I went to work in the in the FDR archives up in Hyde Park. And it was it was exciting just to be at Hyde Park. I mean, it's it's a beautiful place and a wonderful place. And this was before they did a lot of renovations. So it was the old uh, arrangement for the archives. 
And I remembered when I requested certain documents, like the original drafts of the Four Freedom Speeches. You're going to laugh when I tell you this, okay? And even that, I mean, I'm 70 now, so this must have been uh, 10 years ago. I'm losing track of time. So I was already 60, so I wasn't a child at all. And when they delivered it, and I had the first editions, well, the first renditions, as I touched the paper, I knew that many a scholar had already touched them. And I knew that many a figure had touched them at the time they were being drafted. But I couldn't help but wonder if maybe, just maybe, there was residue of FDR or one of those new dealers uh, that I really admired on there, right? And I, so I spent the morning working with them. And then at the lunchtime, I, I decided I was going to go across the street to this tavern for, well, it, it, this is not downtown. You have to walk across these large lawns and then cross the highway. And so I went over to this place. And as I walked, I, I guess I had a cell phone. And I, I, know, I think I called my wife and I said, God, I just touched these papers, you know. If it, and there I was already, you know, a good 60 years old. And I'd been in archives before. But somehow this moment was special. So when I went back and I was looking through these, what was striking is that that you knew it, that there was that one point, I think, I want to say, I can't remember the number. I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know, it was the fourth or fifth or whatever edition in which you could see that something had changed in this speech. And then when I read Samuel Rosenman, who was FDR's chief of staff, he was a lawyer and a judge who FDR brought insisted come down to D.C. to help him run things. He had originally organized his whole campaign for Roosevelt, that is Roosevelt's campaign of 32, that they had, I read this story that Rosenman tells about the night in the, in the I guess, it, maybe the Oval Office or the semi, one of the associated uh, conference rooms. No, it was in the Oval Office because FDR is in his chair. And they're discussing the speech. And apparently Roosevelt sort of says, wait, in terms of the, you know his assistant says take this down that kind of thing it's a famous line which I always forget like take a note or take a law I don't even remember but the point was apparently FDR leans back and the other three and the, the people in the room were his assistant and Samuel Rosenman Harry Hopkins was there I guess and Robert Sherwood who was the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright who had really wanted to be on the speech writing team and, and Roosevelt leans back and he just says it. Okay, he just says these four fundamental human freedoms, and and the guy Samuel Rosenman recalls that how is it possible? They were all sitting there, utterly uncomfortable by the silence. It's like being in a classroom almost, where you're a student and you're wondering, wait, is the professor just lost his place? What's going on here, right? <laughs> but all of a sudden, Roosevelt just says it, and and basically that was Roosevelt's talent. I don't want to talk about Roosevelt. I want to talk about the four freedoms of the greatest generation. But he did have this talent of sort of after many a rendition of a speech of offering what was called the peroration. And um, and and by the way, I want this is something I want to make clear to everybody that a lot of historians say that this, you know, all well and good. It just did. It wasn't as important as the Roosevelt people hoped it might be. Well, that's bullshit. The fact is, it was it really it made a significant if you like, imprint on the on the mentality, to use the French term, mentalité, the mentality of Americans, because they had just come through eight years of terrible economic depression. And here they were on the far side of the depression, because between Roosevelt's New Deal efforts and the war effort, the revving up to the war effort, all of a sudden, Americans not only had jobs, they actually could imagine a future 
and all and now they have to confront a goddamn war which the, you know so but it made this imprint on them and I, I think that generation carried it with them and from Langston Hughes to John Steinbeck, it was referenced. And I'd really, really uh, love to see Steinbeck talking about um, the, the kind of reactionary forces and the attempted co-option, which always comes, right? Because, uh, boy, it resonated for me reading about how um, the right and for us today, the liberals try to co-opt and contain truly emancipatory um, you know, demands and visions and ideals. But uh, I love the line where Steinbeck says, you know, that basically the, the right offers the uh, equal freedom of rich and poor to sleep under bridges. <laughs> well, I'm glad you wrote that up because what's really funny is that after the war, and I don't mean to jump ahead that much, but after the war, when the conservatives, the capitalists and the Southern reactionaries, the white supremacists are trying to block national health care, which Roosevelt has called for in the Economic Bill of Rights and Truman has basically embraced as an idea. It's the conservatives who are quoting the four freedoms as if this says, well, we can't have socialist health care. Well, we can't do this kind of stuff. And the Democrats start retreating. And I say that is that in, in 1952, when Adlai Stevenson, who is truly the mythical liberal, it was no liberal Adlai Stevenson. Adlai Stevenson never mentions the four freedoms during that campaign. The point is that the reactionaries, the conservatives and the capitalists, they they worried about those four freedoms. And as you may recall from if you read the I know you read the book, sorry, you may recall that there was an effort to try to create a fifth freedom during the war. Conservatives and the capitalists wanted a fifth freedom, freedom of enterprise, freedom of private enterprise, no less, because they were convinced that this whole four freedoms ideal was a socialist ideal. God forbid Americans should want freedom from want and fear. Well, you know, it's like I, it's a podcast, not a radio show. Fuck them, you know. <laughs> There's another F for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Well, this maybe, you know, brings us back to uh, something you mentioned uh, before that uh, about the sort of sanitizing of the greatest generation um, yes. history. You know, like you mentioned, there there's all this kind of ha- hagiography of uh, the, you know, World War II veterans. There's movie, you know, Saving Private Ryan, um, which which I recently rewatched that a while ago and it was much more like war propaganda than I had remembered. Um, you never see the Nazis like suffering, you know, it's always like great, you know? Uh, uh, but at any rate, you know, the, this, this idea that, that these were the people who had, you know, s- suffered and built this country into a great, you know, a great and powerful nation. And it seemed, it, it seems like it's, you know, ignoring, uh, a great deal of the, the like substantive content of both the kind of like the, the radicalism of the New Deal Democrats and the, the social milieu at the time. But even in the context of just being like basically rah, rah, war is cool. I like reading about tanks and, and like, like rifle calibers and stuff. Like New Deal infrastructure was absolutely critical to winning the war. For example, uh, Mark Reisner's book, Cadillac Desert, has a great uh, section on this, how the power dams in the uh, Northwest were, were uh, just a- absolutely critical to expanding the aluminum supply. Um, you know, FDR built all of these 
you know, the huge power dams um, on the Columbia River, um, Grand Coulee, and a number of others, you know, Hoover Dam on the Colorado, Shasta in California. And they produce, they, at the time, there was like, who are you going to sell all this power to? Nobody lives <laughs> in these states. Um, and then, like, 18 months later, they were just cranking out aluminum as fast as they could to build, uh, uh, you know, uh, aluminum uh, to, to build airplanes, fighters and bombers and so on, um, you know, as part of the war effort. So and the you, shipbuilding yards and the shipbuilding yards in many cases are on the West Coast. By, by yeah. <laughs> so can you go into a, a little bit about how like, I mean, it feels akin to how Martin Luther King has sort of been, you know, divested of all of his like important thoughts and becoming this sort of yeah. national mascot who had a dream once or like <laughs> FDR and the World War II veteran are just sort of like, gee, w- wouldn't it be nice to defeat fascism? That's all we ever did. Yeah, no, thank Ryan, I can't thank you enough for, for taking us back to there, okay? Yeah, no, in fact, one of the reasons that I wrote the book is that, okay, all I knew was that every time you heard about the greatest generation, you kept hearing about winning the war. Now, by the way, if if it only meant winning the war to become the greatest generation, I don't have any argument with that. I mean fascists and nazis are fascists and nazis and japanese militarists look they deserve to have the shit kicked out of them and thank god it was the american gis who joined with soviet soldiers and others to make that happen but the more but the other thing is is you're right they have literally been robbed of their if you like legacy okay the legacy of the new deal and what happened during the war effort look i mean my argument is and i i Everyone says that I live on superlatives, and so be it. This was the most progressive generation in American history. This was the generation. And by the way, I say, and please, listeners, do not, when I say greatest generation, come up with white in your mind. These are not white greatest generation. This is a, this is a completely American and diverse generation that made these things happen. And for and the sins of Roosevelt and the generation are then pursued, not pursued, they are battled against in the post-war years by those very folks who fought that war and confronted the New Deal. Look, I mean, this is a generation that, ena- that literally pushed Roosevelt all the sooner to enact Social Security. This is a generation that pushed Roosevelt to pursue and enact the National Labor Relations Act. This is a generation that pushed Roosevelt to do the things that he had said he would do, but had, was stymied in doing all too often, and they empowered him. Okay? Now, so the fact is that in the 1930s, for all of the devastation wrought, somewhere around 1937, 1938, began a, a reduction of inequality by the way, which was across the board of race and ethnicity and gender, even if it wasn't equal in all cases of race and ethnicity and gender. And it continues from the late 30s, especially takes off after the war as a, you don't take off a reduction, I guess, but it's it's made all the more effective after the war, all the way through to 1974. Why? Because this is a generation that created labor unions. This is the generation that, that, Literally, one of every three workers was in a labor union in the mid-1950s. This was the generation that 
that millions of workers and that men white and African-American and women enlisted in these labor unions in the 30s and all the more so in their diversity during World War II. So here's this generation that transformed America, okay, and pushed FDR to transform it in legislative terms. And after the war comes home, okay, organizes unions. By the way, a lot of people don't realize there were actual general strikes in 1946, okay, that if it was up to the labor movement, we would have had national health care as Roosevelt envisioned it in 1946 or 47 or 48. It was, by the way, capitalists who feared national health care, who finally started negotiating to give workers in unions health care. It's not like they won this health care back in the 30s. They won it after the war. So the fact is, this is a generation that is pursuing the kinds of things that the labor movement originally envisioned in the American standard of living that Roosevelt called for in freedom from want and freedom from fear. And seriously speaking, sometime around 1947, it's measurable. From 47 to 74, there's a reduction of inequality. It's called the Great Compression, of course, as opposed to the Great Depression or what we've witnessed, the Great Recession. So now, Republicans... Uh, here's the thing. Republicans in the 1990s, they're so much c- more clever than Democrats. I mean, they're t- don't you want to kick the Democrats in the ass? Don't you want to smack them on the head? Don't you want to say, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> this is the Democratic legacy. This is not a, this is not a Republican I feel like that's, a, that, that's like a recap of every episode of Left Anchor, basically. <laughs> I'm sure. No, it's why I love you guys as much as I do. So what happens? You get here's what happens. So you get the likes of Ronald Reagan in the in the in in the nineteen eighties, and then later Republicans who go out of their way to celebrate the greatest generation as as if the entire generation is war heroes. Okay. And and they often use the word liberty, they throw in democracy when they do this, but it is the case that over and over again, here's Rose, here's Reagan who wanted to literally undo Social Security, undo the National Labor Relations Act if it was if it was in his power, at the same time celebrating the greatest generation that made all that possible. And then in the 1990s, they are the first, the capitalists grab hold of the greatest generation to, to make money off of the idea. The Republicans grab hold of it to celebrate the to celebrate the, the, the war, which is to be celebrated, but celebrate them in their full-scale legacy, right? And where are the Democrats? By the way, liberals and leftists scorned the idea of the greatest generation, which is, by the way, one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I couldn't figure out why it was that those of us who should literally be the ones championing the generation are the ones who are somehow saying, oh, it's just nostalgia, failing to appreciate what our fellow citizens really were interested in remembering as a way then of leveraging a new New Deal, of leveraging national health care. I mean, the left liberal to progressive to radical utterly failed in the course of the 1990s into the 2000s to lay hold of the kind of memory that could have empowered us. And this continues over and over again. And if I can jump to the present, right, you know how I'm still angry with Bernie for failing to call FDR onto the debate stage when he was debating his fellow Democrats to smack them with the legacy of what the Democratic Party is supposed to be about. I can tell you now, look, I'm going to vote for Biden, but sure as hell, I'm not doing it happily. 
But I, but I, but I could tell you this as well that if they had the decency to call somebody like me and say, "What are we failing to do?" I would tell them, "Okay, you claim you want to have a presidency like FDR, right? I'd tell you to go ahead and start remembering who FDR was, right? I mean, sorry." And I even if they do lot. that, even if they do that, Harvey, we know that. Look, even if it was going to be Bernie, we knew that the left would have to push pressure and cajole just like they did with FDR. But, you know, if as we fear, if as we fear, Biden turns out to be a Truman, uh, even the Truman that began sounding like FBR, FDR initially and then and then didn't end up fulfilling that that, uh, you know, the the actions didn't follow the words. Uh, we know that we're always going to be in for a struggle because part of your, 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 you know, uh, we, we really enjoyed when we had Zach Carter uh, reading his book on on John Maynard Keynes. And oh we yeah, were shocked, so that right? was a good, ep- very good episode. People we we, we were shocked though, and, and and quite taken aback when Keynes died two thirds through the book, and that was very traumatic for us. And similarly, I had that experience where FDR also dies in the in the, you know midway through this book or towards the end, and that was kind of uh, you know shocking and traumatic. But Spoiler it's good alert. to see then. Yeah, spoiler. <laughs> but but it's good then to see it situated in the history and the failures of those who were not FDR that came after, whether it's Truman or Carter or even LBJ, right? And so so what can we learn about the failures of, of the elites and, and what the, the people need to remember, um, regardless of whether the, the elites heed our call to do what they should as leaders? Okay, well, okay, first let me give you my fantasy answer. My fantasy answer is that all the people who think of them as liberal and leftist, whether they're on Facebook or Twitter or whatever else is out there in social media for, you know, whether it's, I don't care if it's TikTok, I, I don't care. In some fashion, in some fashion, there are, here's what we need to do. We need to send to the Biden campaign, okay? First, three letters, FDR, okay? <laughs> Second, the greatest generation created, we send this as a, as a real text, created these things, okay? Why is it that it's the Republicans who will scorn FDR and lay claim to the greatest generation and literally fracture history, fragment history? And why is it that the Democrats continue to turn? They don't even fragment history, the Democrats. They literally turn their backs on history. And, if, and remember what I said at the very beginning. I believe, contrary to the cynicism or the, of, I know I'm far older than you guys, probably, you know, one and a half times your age at the least. It's the point that we shouldn't for a moment believe that Americans are not deeply down, desiring of making America, America, as Langston Hughes would say, the America that never was. That's right. Okay. And Langston Hughes, as you saw, as you read, uh, Alexei, the fact is that he he promoted the greatest generation. He said he didn't say what the hell's wrong with it. You know, how could you possibly talk about the great about the greatest generation, or for that matter, more importantly, the four freedoms? He said, I want the four freedoms too. So here's the thing. So now step two. I think everyone should send this message to the Biden campaign: four freedoms. Why is it the Democrats can at least embrace that? You can't tell me the Democrats are embarrassed by the idea of freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want and freedom from fear. And if they are, if Biden can tell me that to my face, 
hell, then I wouldn't even bother them. The danger, Harvey, of you know elucidating a vision is then they have to actually do something or be held accountable if they don't. And then that's where we definitely organize to push just as FDR encouraged Americans to be pushed. I mean, to push him, I mean, to push him. I mean, 1935, I'm sure I'm repeating myself from a previous time we spoke. You know, FDR said, you know, new laws unto themselves on, on their own do not bring the new millennium. He was inviting people to organize and push him. And that's what people did in the American Youth Congress, in the labor movement, even indeed in the, in the NAACP and later the Congress of Racial Equality and all the more A. Philip Randolph's March on Washington movement. So we push now. We get I don't know how you guys feel about this. We get Biden elected, but we've organized even before then to then set fire to his feet, you might say. OK, I mean, that, that's the kind of yeah. thing we have to do. It, and it's called Four Freedoms. Yeah, you, you know, it's it's really kind of emblematic of the, the sort of historical atrocity you're talking about here that Trump made his campaign I mean, it was like an embodiment of the bastardization of the great, uh, the greatest generation legend that it was make oh, yeah. America great again. And I think it was explicitly calling back to that. And it's also emblematic of the incompetence of the Hillary Clinton campaign that they said America is already great in response. <laughs> it was just blatantly right. untrue. And also just leaves aside the legacy of, of, you know, the, the, uh, the democratic accomplishments. Uh, of, of prior generations and saying like, oh, we don't need to do any of that. Everything's fine here. <laughs> Ryan, that was perfect because you're now reminding me of, of the country. So here's Donald Trump running an America First campaign. America First, which was basically the most reactionary sort of political force of, in 1940 and 41, okay, made up of, of you know, racists and anti-Semites and big business folks who, who fooled Americans into believing that they were safe if they were willing, perhaps, to negotiate with Hitler, period. And so he, he's already called his movement America First. Then he goes, I think his, look, I mean, he gave the worst inaugural address in human history and he <laughs> lied about the turnout. But he, I do believe... But, but he fulfilled his promise to bring carnage to the streets. He, did, he definitely <laughs> fulfilled that. But wait, did he not use the term forgotten man or something like that? Yes, it I is, think so, yeah. I mean, that's FD, that was FDR's point about the economic declaration of, of, of rights is that, you know, for too long, it's the titans of industry. In other words, the capitalist moguls who basically run the show. And the time is for us to, you know, lay hold of the Declaration of Independence and declare an economic declaration of rights and return power to the people. I mean, look, he, he may be an, he may be a fucking idiot, Trump, and he may be he may be all of that, but he is damn clever. He is damn clever. And I, I don't want to necessarily, you know, what do they call it? I, I don't want to believe for a moment because it's dangerous to think that it's all over November. It ain't over yet. No, no, it's not. Um, I, I wanted to uh, change gears a little bit and bring a uh, reverse course a little bit to the 1960s. Um, okay. you, you talk about, you talk about, you talk a, a bit about Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s and how, he in some ways expanded, you know, the, he, he, he pushed the ball forward in, in many ways on the sort of, you know, for freedom's agenda with Medicare, Medicaid, the war on poverty and so on. Um, but then at the same time, you know, had an imperialist war in Vietnam that kind of cracked the 
democratic coalition in two and, um, you know, helped like, uh, certainly helped, uh, Hubert Humphrey lose in 1968, I would say. Um, and, and thence, you know, um, uh, helped inaugurate, you know, the end of the sort of like forward progress on the civil rights movement. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, uh, like maybe contrasting LBJ with F with FDR and, and how, um, how Johnson kind of, uh, failed to live up to the standard of, of FDR who he kind of worshiped, you know, and yes, he did worship imitate. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's no need for us to, well, let me start by saying LBJ may be to our to, to our loss, the great tragic figure in, in among American presidents. And I say that, look, I mean, LBJ, LBJ began as a school teacher in Mexican-American towns in Texas. And was and the only reason the kids in the school and in, in his own classes even had any kind of materials to, to work with was he went into his own pocket to make it possible. I mean, he really knew what poverty was about. But he also knew that if you're going to make a career in politics in Texas, you can't be one and independent and you can't be terribly principled in your, you know, integrity is not the key to, to politics in Texas. So he does, he, he's make, as he makes his way in and out of the political world in the 1930s, he is learning the lesson of being a Texas politician. I mean, politic, look, the campaigns were rigged. I mean, the, the outcomes were rigged. The Democrats controlled politics and you had to play the game. And in fact, I believe he saw the Roosevelt administration as the way out for a while. So he connects himself very closely to the New Deal. He, he definitely does. And he makes his way to Congress. And moreover, he eventually be, he does become I'm getting my order of his advanced a little out of whack press. But he is the head of the National Youth Administration in Texas, which was a major initiative on the part of the Roosevelt administration to address the needs of working poor and poor teenagers and college age kids to keep them in school. It's the beginning of what we think of as work study programs in the United States. And it really did. It really was significant stuff. And for by maneuvering, as he did, you might say that LBJ becomes kind of an, an adopted political son to Roosevelt. He really does hitch his star. I mean, he really hooks himself to the FDR um, presidency. And he goes, actually enters the war for a while. And he, and you know, he ends up being moderately shot at in a plane and he leaves. But it gives him a war record, so to speak. Anyhow, he is clearly an FDR Democrat. However, it's also the case that after the war, if you're going to make your way in politics, you're going to sell out in Texas. You're going to do it. And he sells out to very big, a very big corporate interest. Now, it's interesting that he is regularly associated during the 50s with with the Dixie. Well, the Dixiecrats with Southern Democrats. And it is the case that he rises in power. And as what is it? Robert Caro, is that his name? Calls him the dubs in the master of the Senate in that book that he wrote. But it's interesting to think that Johnson didn't oppose civil rights during the 50s. It's more the case that he knew that no major civil rights bill could get through Congress if it wasn't watered down. In fact, I just heard something last today by a black historian giving a speech on C-SPAN in, in 2012, and he actually was praising 
the Civil Rights Act of was it 1957? Yeah, saying that that only because we've had the Civil Rights Acts of you know in, in, of of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 that we tend to fail to appreciate the significance of the Civil Rights Acts of the late 50s. However, watered down they were because they were pr- they offered real promises. Look, Congress is now raising you know the civil rights question, which they hadn't done since 1866 and 1875. So Johnson himself is this guy who enables those things to pass in the Senate, even if they're not the kinds of bills that African-Americans aspired to, or for that matter, white liberals aspired to. So LBJ becomes president because of a terrible accident and uh, of history, the assassination of John Kennedy. And he turns out to be a far more progressive president, liberal if you prefer, than John Kennedy even aspired to be. I mean, Kennedy was no liberal. He himself disavowed being a liberal after the war when he ran for Congress. He literally dissociated himself from an organization he refused to join, the American Veterans Committee, that was liberal, indeed progressive, uh, Roosevelt legacy kind of progressive. So Johnson becomes president. Now, when he becomes president, he gives a speech several days after the assassination. His, you know, this is to bring the country together and to offer a vision of what, where we go from here. And everyone remembers on that night, he calls for Americans to rally to the president's memory and enact, push to enact a civil rights act, the, the civil rights bill. That's the first thing on the agenda. And indeed, LBJ, this Texas senator, now vice president, now president, is going to enact this major civil rights act with the help of the Democratic decidedly liberal Congress and Republicans who haven't left liberalism too far behind yet. But it's also the case, sadly, that the second thing on the agenda, which was Kennedy's agenda, was a tax cut, a major tax cut for business. And it's, it's unsurprising, Harvey, then in, in that case, he didn't live up to FDR. Um, and it's not surprising that he was fine with Martin Luther King Jr. until Dr. King was pushing against the Vietnam War, against imperialism, militarism, and against capitalism specifically. So, so the, the big, big failure and the difference that you show in, in the book is that he wasn't really on board with fundamentally challenging capitalism and capital, ab- right? Ab- exactly. And, and by the way, as, as much as there's every reason to admire the, the vision of the Great Society – and the pursuit of the war on poverty, for the record, I understand that Nixon spent more money on the war on poverty than Johnson himself did. Having said that, <laughs> having said that, I will tell you what I believe the great flaw of the war on poverty was, besides the inadequate dollars that funded it. LBJ subscribed to the idea of education is the answer. Yeah. And he didn't take the next step, guaranteed jobs for those who you're going to train and educate. And if he had created a jobs program, not unlike FDR did, whether it was a civilian conservation corps, a WPA, I mean, you name it, create jobs, literally create jobs. And, the, and sadly, the jobs he created were, in the, were, you know, drafted white and all the more young persons of color into the military. That was the job program of the 1960s, late 1960s, you know, you might say. And, and, and 
anyhow, so LBJ failed. But it was the case that he, he believed he would be the next FDR. In fact, I'll go a step further. He actually had this idea. He didn't like the idea of going pursuing the war in Vietnam. He was convinced, however, if he didn't do it, that he, it would, he would never be forgiven for having failed to combat communism. But so he tried to hook a kind of New Deal side into the war. And he actually began to speak and he had people start drawing up plans to turn the Mekong River, I, th I think it was the Mekong River Delta, into the new TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority. <laughs> Uh, you know, oh, and uh, you know, it's so I mean, we, you know, it's Jesus when you think about it. But by the way, as a further note to that, a Philip Randolph, who was the great black and civil rights, you know, the black labor leader and civil rights leader of beginning from the 30s right through the 60s, um, the man who launched the March on Washington movement that that pushed Roosevelt to create the Fair Employment Practice Commission and attempt to by way of an executive order to desegregate the defense industries, who later compelled Truman to executive by way of executive order to end the segregation in the U.S. in the U.S. military in the mid 60s. You may have caught that in reading the book. He issues. I'm going to show you the rest of the people out there. Can he issues a freedom budget in 1966? It's a call for not just a war on poverty, but a massive New Deal, basically to end poverty in America. And you'll notice the subtitle is Budgeting Our Resources from 1966 to 1975 to Achieve Freedom from Want. A. Philip Rett, the two people who really wanted to pursue the Roosevelt legacy, you might say, at, at, at the upper reaches of American public life, were A. Philip Randolph and Walter Ruther, okay? Mm -hmm. Two magnificent labor leaders. And, you know, and Johnson failed. He failed. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's, he, he, I mean, I'm, no, I'm, it's, 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 it's a, one of the many um, missed opportunities we've had, but so that we don't miss another opportunity, is there some silver lining to the way that this terrible pandemic, uh, which is obviously this confluence of terrible things from the, the, the fascist police state to uh, the inability of the current administration or even the Democrats to, to muster up any courage uh, to do anything about the, I think, million jobs that are being lost every week for the last 17 weeks, uh, let alone the public health disaster? Is there something that a new administration um, Biden, right, and, and people around him could be pushed to do to take advantage of the crises that are kind of the confluence of crises uh, that might, what can we learn from history that that, that crisis might be taken advantage of to, to kind of pursue some of these freedoms? Okay, well, first, let me tell you something which isn't going to sound all that promising. Okay. Here we are in the middle of the pandemic, millions have not only lost their jobs, They've, tens of millions have not only lost jobs, they've also lost their health care, that, that their unions won sometime between the late 1940s and sometime in the 1960s or early 1970s, right? So you would think, you would think that it wouldn't have taken very much for the Democrats to embrace, Bernie was not a Democrat, remember, sadly enough, to embrace Medicare for all. Jesus, I mean, right? Number one. <laughs> No, no brainer. brainer. No okay. brainer. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's the note. Here's the thing that I, I don't mean to really depress you, but and maybe maybe there's a way we can kick Biden into gear as things get all the more horrific under this Trump administration. You remember the task forces, right? Yeah. Can I just say I'm going to ask you, I hate to embarrass you in front of your listeners, but did either one of you read the reports? 
No, of yeah. course not. Well, summaries, summaries, not the hundred. It's a hundred pages or something. I so, did it yeah. for you. You read the hundred pages? Wow. wow. Okay. okay. The two I was Great. most interested in were the economy report and the healthcare report. And when I so I, mostly because the economy report was co-chaired by a friend, Sarah Nelson, the head of the airline flight attendants. I hope the next president of the AFL-CIO and a member of the committee was Sarah, was um, Stephanie. Maybe she, maybe she could be the VP and then Joe Biden could get coronavirus. And I then... tried to float that idea and I told her I was talking about that and she got really <laughs> upset with me. So, At the very least, if, if Joe Biden gets coronavirus, even if he doesn't die, he might lose his sense of smell and, and stop trying to smell people's hair. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Okay, but well, listen. We, di- we digress. Sorry. And Stephanie Kelton, who is whose book, The Deficit Myth, is really important in proposing a new way of looking at deficits and democracy. So I, I can tell you that I, was, I read them closely. So f- first, the economy one. The economy one sounds great. Heavy duty investment in job creation. But they didn't take the next step, which was terribly, terribly disappointing. Well, two things they didn't do is that they didn't call for a federal job guarantee which, by the way, was already the Democratic platform back in 1945, I believe, okay, as a part of the Roosevelt legacy. And and Roosevelt himself basically indicated it in the Economic Bill of Rights of 1944 that he proposed. So, and by the way, the, the Sanders people wanted it. They wanted a federal job guarantee. So you know the Biden people were the ones who blocked it. Is that do you think that's the reason they blocked the Green New Deal as well? Because the Green New Deal almost necessarily involves the federal jobs guarantee. Yeah, right? yeah, I, I, that, I, one, I do think that could well be the case. And the other thing is, is if you read the report, the economy report, and I, and I know this had to do with the Biden people, it basically uh, imagines that poverty is always going to be with us. We just have to improve the programs to address it. Instead of saying, like, a. Philip Randolph did back in 1966, let's pursue a freedom budget that will bring an end to poverty and an end to want. Let us create freedom from want. So that's the economy report. By the way, it's otherwise interesting and very promising, but it's not on the progressive slash radical scale that Roosevelt would have wanted, that A. Philip Randolph would have wanted. Okay. Now the health. What, what was the what was the economic proposal to to have new jobs? What was the, the kind of, heavy uh, duty investment in job creation? Yeah, and they they That's have it. a climate conservation core that they want to. I mean that that is, that is straight up lifted from the CCC. Um, yeah. Oh that, yeah, for sure. Right. I I was contacted when these things were taking place. They wanted me. They wanted. They didn't want to read the whole book, I guess. They said, give us something short and pith- something that will really push the idea of the four freedoms. I had great hopes, okay? <laughs> there's not a single mention. I don't even think F- – I mean, there's echoes of, of the FDR years, but there's, there's no voice of the FDR years that really comes through. Yeah. Next, if you read the health care report, it actually uses the term universal health care. But its way of pursuing it is to basically improve <laughs> – Guess what? Obamacare. Yes, it's, it's the equal freedom of the rich and poor to sleep under bridges. Yes. So I want to ask. So ask yourselves this: What the hell would it take for Democrats to finally recognize that Americans 
by way of the polls, by way of their interest in the greatest generation, by way of their desperate need, given their loss of health care coverage, to want universal health care in which they're not going to have to sit down and spend half their lives filling out forms for some goddamn insurance company. I think, I think Harvey, we want freedom from fear for the masses, but we want to instill fear in the Democratic leadership. We want to primary yes, the hell out of that's it. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. You well, bet. And, and here, you know, maybe as a closing note, here's a little bit more of a uh, positive uh, uh, reason for some slight optimism. I was just looking at a poll from uh, The Economist and YouGov. Um, you say that what, uh, if you're... If you're a Biden supporter, are you mostly voting for Joe Biden or against Donald Trump? And the breakdown is voting for Biden, 40 percent against Donald Trump, 58 percent. And I think if you were to go back and look at the similar polls from uh, Hillary Clinton and especially Obama, those proportions would be reversed. Um, Yes. And so I think that, you know, uh I mean, insofar as Biden's team is looking at this and seeing that, like, he really has no enthusiastic base of support, unlike Obama. And and so, therefore, he will, you know, if they have any sense, which they may not, they will have to, like, try to cultivate some. And then on the other hand, you know, the, the, the people who have been in the streets, uh, you know, protesting police brutality and all the rest of it, um, have, uh, you know, see a Biden presidency and if things don't improve, I think they will not be at all as willing to just sort of sit back and go home as people did in 2009 when Obama demobilized, um, you know, OFA and yeah. uh, all of his, all, and, and sort of said, no, I've got this. And so, you know, uh, in a sense, I would say it's kind of up to us, you know. I mean, the reason I didn't read those task force reports is because I thought it was worth the paper it was printed on, you know. Like, I, I'm it, the only one. I'm the only one who read them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and so, and so you know, it will depend on Congress. It will depend on the you know mobilization in the street and like the sort of you know status of forces in the in the discourse and argumentation to a very slight degree, um, and you know so. <laughs> I mean, I, I dare say, Ryan, you're right, that the, the protests have gotten more done in a few months than just letting the elites handle it has done in years. And we shouldn't forget that under Obama, Occupy rose up and so did Black Lives Matter. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it would be, I, I don't think Biden is really committed to his previous record or maybe really anything at all anymore. And so it may be possible to sort of ventriloquize him into being a great president by sort of sticking the people's, you know, hand up into his mouth and just making them. Ryan, 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 you know what? I have been saying that to people and I've been, everyone says, don't, don't, you know, you're fantasizing. I I actually believe, look, I, I think when FDR, I think when FDR went into the White House, he he made it clear what he hoped to do. The fact that it required mobilization takes nothing away from him. Now, in this case, I, I think Biden's record is is deplorable. Okay. Yeah. But it is also the case. It is also the case that he he'd have to be. May, I don't think he's a fool, Biden. And I mean, I don't. Even if he exaggerated his academic career or actually lied about it. The fact is that he knows damn well that most Americans are not going to put up 
They're just not, especially young people are not going to put up with this bullshit any longer. But here's what I would say, since I'm not so sure we can get Biden to shift without enabling, without having literally pushed from the bottom up. I think it would be great. And, I, and I'm a white guy, so this is probably stepping out a bit far. But I think it would be absolutely wonderful if Black Lives Matter and its allies, both in the streets and in academe everywhere, would literally sort of push the idea that A. Philip Randolph himself pushed back in the middle of a very conservative moment in the mid-1920s. A. Philip Randolph in 1926 gave a speech at the sesquicentennial celebration of the American independence. So it's you know, 150 years. And he said, you know, African-Americans brought democracy to the South for the first time ever during Reconstruction. Okay. In other words, there was no democracy until Reconstruction in the South. Yep. And he said, here it is in the middle of this really conservative moment. And he said, maybe our next gift, and he meant this for African-American workers, maybe our next gift to America and American democracy will be economic citizenship. Now, he himself pursued that all the way through so that even the March on Washington move movement that eventually led to the March on Washington, not simply of that did not take place in 1941, but that did take place in 1963. That was a march on Washington for jobs and freedom. And I would love to imagine that those, those crowds in the street, the protests in the street, which are white and black and Latino and every other ethnic hue in America, that they would not only call for an end to police brutality, which we should all be demanding, and a demilitarization of police, but it should also be calling for economic citizenship. That is not just economic opportunity, but a much greater sense of economic equality and empowerment. And I'm not going back to the war on poverty. I'm talking about really the right to organize in labor unions, the right not to be burdened with student debt to make it through college, the right of Americans to have a guaranteed living wage, the right of Americans to never have to experience poverty. Amen, brother. And and may that may, may that message be the the bond that makes Americans also realize that no one's free until everyone's free, that freedom and equality are inextricably bound, but also not just for Americans, but but back to to Roosevelt's internationalism, that uh, we want the end, right, the end of oppression economically, militarily and otherwise everywhere. And that's the solidarity that we could we could fight power with. Well said. Excellent. Well, we'll probably leave it there for now, but uh, th thanks for coming on, Harvey. The book is called The Fight for the Four Freedoms. I'll say it right this time, and uh, we'll, we'll pl plop a link in the description. You can check it out. Thank you. Always a Good pleasure. to see you guys. Thanks, Good to talk. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.